I've been praying for you, praying that the Lord would stir up in you a a kind of excitement and enthusiasm and deep gratitude for God who is your Savior. That's what I hope happens this morning. You know, I, I think everyone, as I've been thinking about these verses this week, has a deep down kind of desire to be loved by someone who you know would come for you if you were taken. To know that you wouldn't be abandoned. To know that there is someone that when you find yourself caught up in sin that you could go to and they wouldn't just look on you with disdain and walk away. Someone who when you're in a desperate moment financially would want to come alongside and and to help you. Someone who wouldn't just leave you in your brokenness. It it reminds me a a lot of a series of movies that you've probably seen one of. there's an actor by the name of Leon Neeson uh, who made a, a movie, Taken, that I think actually is connecting deeply into this longing of the heart to not be left alone. And pretty much every movie that he made after this movie is this movie. He's really good at it. Uh, in this movie, he plays the character Brian Mills. He's an ex-CIA officer whose daughter is abducted by human traffickers while she's vacationing in France with a friend. And Mills, he tracks her down across the world to find her, taking out bad dude after bad dude until he confronts the boss behind it all, St. Clair. And he tells him whenever St. Clair meets Brian, whose daughter he stole, he says, look, it was business. It wasn't personal. Like, how is it business to steal some guy's daughter, right? And Mills looks back at him and says, it was all personal to me. I mean, this guy took his daughter. He he came after her, this father, with everything he had to save her because what? She was his, his daughter, his beloved daughter. He would do anything for her, sacrifice anything for her. We're back in our summer series in Isaiah 40 to 55 where God has promised a spirit-anointed servant who would come to deliver his people, not only from exile, but from their sins. Israel's sins against God led to their exile in Babylon. And in Isaiah 42, 18 to 43, 21 that we just heard read, we find an exiled Judah feels like no one is coming to save them. In fact, God himself says there's no one coming to restore. There's no one that cares that they are enslaved. But in this oracle, God announces Himself as the Savior who redeemed His people in the past and who is going to redeem His people in the future. God's comforting them. He's comforting His people by calling them back from looking to the gods who do not come after them, who do not save them, who do not have power to help to Himself as their Redeemer. Now, here's our big idea. It's this, that Jesus came to save and redeem blind witnesses to sing His praise. God came to save and redeem blind witnesses to sing His praise. We, we see this first in 18 to 25, where the blind messenger experiences the fire of God's anger. Now, God commands Israel, you'll notice in verse 18, to hear and look. 
But there's a problem. They are blind and deaf. What's striking is that he just called the idolatrous nations blind back in 42.7. So here Israel is indistinguishable from the nations. They look so much like them. And then the irony thickens if you look in verse 19 in that God chose Israel as his servant. He says, you're my servant. You are my messenger to the nations. Israel is God's dedicated one. That covenant people of God, whom God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. He has peace with them as his dedicated one. Now think about this. A blind deaf messenger to a blind deaf people sounds pretty hopeless, right? I mean, I don't know if you played that telephone game where you tell somebody next to you a message and they carry it to the next person, next person, and usually either intentionally or unintentionally, the message gets really messed up. Well, imagine if nobody can see or hear. Don't know who you're talking to or what they said. And then your job is to convey the message of the glory of the one who talked to you. Well, the problem, according to verse 20, is this. This servant sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. So the nation of Israel, they got a front row seat to watch the glory of God displayed in rescuing them from Egypt, handing them Canaan and delivering Judah from Assyria. And yet, they still failed to trust and obey. They didn't live in light of what they had heard or seen. And in verse 21, God was pleased to covenant with Israel and give them His law, which revealed God's glorious nature in a unique way with them. God revealed His glory to Israel before He would reveal His glory through Israel. And if so, why in verse 22 do we find Israel helpless? I mean, this was supposed to be the people that were magnifying God's glory to the nations, and yet that's not what they look like in verse 22. They're helpless. They were plundered and looted, trapped in holes, hidden in prisons, with none to rescue or restore. And why are they hopeless? They have become a plunder with no one to rescue, spoil with no one to say restore. No one cares. This really seems to speak of their exile in Babylon. But how did God's messenger of His glory to the nations end up blind, deaf, and locked up in a dungeon with no rescue party in sight? Well, don't miss this. What we see here is not just a disability. It's a culpability. What we find here is not that you have those who simply are blind because it is their experience without any kind of responsibility on their part. No, the picture that we are going to see here is they are blind because they have given over their sight. The optometrist told Israel they had 20-20 vision with physical eyes. The audiologist said their ears are just fine. But what they needed was a spiritual cardiologist because their problem wasn't closed ears or blind eyes. It was a hard heart. 
And God explains Israel's culpability in verses 23 to 25. Uh, Look there with me. This is what he goes on to say. Chapter 42, verses 23 to 25. Isaiah says this, Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? And whose ways they would not walk, and whose laws they would not obey. So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. I understand God to invite his deaf people to start listening to his oracles of coming events so that they might start trusting in God from the heart when they see these events actually take place in history. But did you catch what he said in verse 24? The Lord gave Jacob up to the looters and the plunders. And why? But because they had sinned against him, not walking in his ways, not living in light of the law that he had given them. They did not obey his law. And the fiery physical enemy... Those, those physical enemies that warred and battled against them. Here we find in verse, verse 25 that ultimately they dropped unrelentingly upon them because they did not understand and did not take to heart what God was doing behind it all. It burned them up, their lack of understanding. Now, look, if any of you ever find yourself like suddenly combusting into flames, you should probably ask why. But don't miss this. In this text, what we find is is that they they don't even think about the nature of where God is in all of this. Now, I don't want us to miss this. God's people, we face all kinds of fiery trials in this sin-riddled world. That's in the Old Testament. We find that in the New Testament. God's people find themselves in difficult, fiery trials. And sometimes those trials are for a variety of different reasons. Creation. Uh, We know that itself, it cries out with things like earthquakes and even wildfires. Our our physical bodies are still tied to the realm of death. And and we often know that we are sick because our temperatures, what, rise. We experience all kinds of physical sufferings, like cancer, like Alzheimer's, like zits. Our bodies don't work right. And, and James 5 says that some of this, some of our sickness is due to sin. That's why we confess our sins and ask the elders to pray for us. But in John 9, Jesus said a man was not blind due to his sin or his parents, but instead that it was an occasion that God might do a work to display himself in his life and that Jesus might be seen as the light of the world through him. We have spiritual attacks that come upon us that strike us. Ephesians 6.16 tells us in all circumstances to take up the shield of faith. Why? Because you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one with it. Peter describes a fiery trial of being insulted for the name of Christ. I wish that was the only trouble I faced all the time, was being, uh, bringing uh, stuff on me for insulting the name of Christ, but unfortunately, uh, I'm not always that guy. Honoring Him can lead to things getting harder for a while in 1 Peter 4.12. 
Sometimes evil people bring suffering upon you. Reminds me of that quote from uh, Alfred in The Dark Knight where he's speaking to Batman about the Joker, and he says some people just like to watch the world burn. There are wicked people in the world that, that bring heat on us, and sometimes we just make dumb decisions, right? Like, I shouldn't have done that. It's kind of my fault. But what we find here is not a disability. It's not that we are an innocent victim or bystander, but what we find here is the nation of Israel is culpable before God. Israel chose to be blind to the grace of God, and they faced the fiery consequences of their sin. And the sad, the sad nature of this is not just that they were experiencing the fiery consequence of their sin, but did you notice they clung to their sin, held on like with a white-knuckle grip until it consumed them rather than looking to God to come and to rescue them. Do you see that? Like, things just got worse and worse and worse. And they continued to sin and sin and sin. And they never stopped. And they were, they were never going to stop until they were consumed in their sin. What a horrible picture of the nature of the way that we as people can sometimes cling to our sin rather than clinging to Christ. They ran from their Redeemer. No one was coming in this text to rescue them from the just consequences of their sins. The Navy SEALs weren't coming. Liam Neeson wasn't making a movie about them. No one was coming. But let me ask you, this morning as you see the nation of Israel and you're thinking, what a dumb people. Could it be that you were knowingly sinning, but unknowingly experiencing God's judgment. God, hear me, brothers and sisters, disciplines the son and the daughter that he loves. And the purpose is to purify you, to make you holy, to help you to see him more clearly. You feel like sin has dominion over you today and there's no one who can save you, no one coming for you, no one strong enough to defeat sin's stronghold in your life. Maybe you've given up on fighting lust or anger or loneliness or, or whatever because you sense no one is coming for you. Like, who cares, right, about, about you? And especially when you know your sinful heart, your mistakes, your sins, the fact that you, you didn't fall into a, a good life like some other people did, and you just wonder... Like, is, is anybody coming for me? I mean, this is where Israel's at. They were not chosen because they were great people. They were chosen because they were the least people. And that least people who should have been grateful for God in their lives turned on him, rebelled against him, sought other gods. Is anybody coming for them? Maybe you're thinking, is anybody coming for, for you? Well, don't miss this. One of the beautiful statements, short phrases in the Bible. That is the but now of Isaiah 43. The but now. He lets us linger for a moment in the darkness of the dungeon, and then he says, but I'm still God. Notice, second, the Savior shows up to redeem this people through the fire in Isaiah 43, 1-7. Now, <clears throat> uh, there's a book that's been written by Jim Hamilton. It's about 600 pages, uh, but the title is almost worth the price of the book. Uh, he says that the central theme of the Bible is God's glory in salvation through judgment. If you're thinking about the main storyline, God's glory 
in salvation through judgment. Now, I don't know that that works everywhere in the Bible, but it works here. This text is a, a demonstration of this kind of theme. Notice God's encouragement to his people in verses 1 to 4. He says this, now, but now, but now, something's new. Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you were precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples, in exchange for your life. I mean, don't miss what's happening here. This but now, it, it signals God's heart is still for his covenant people. They've done everything to help it not be, but he's still for them. And God said nobody's coming to restore Israel. And just as the last glimmer of hope fades, God shows up encouraging them with these words, fear not. There was a lot to be fearful of. They are living in an enemy land where they are being forced to live as those who do not worship the true God. They are persecuted. They are not at home in their homes. And he's still the God who, notice it says in verse 1, created and formed Israel. I mean, these are really the same words. Formed, same word used in Genesis 2-7 for the way that God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. He made him a living creature, kind of like a, a potter forming a vessel out of clay. And it's followed by God's triumphant cry in these verses, you are mine. God also redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea, and he says that I will rescue you again. Now, this is a really interesting word for redeemed. Uh, we, we've seen it before. It's used like 24 times in the book of Isaiah. But it, it comes from this Hebrew word goel that speaks of uh, a next of kin who has the right to take on the needs of his helpless relatives as his own. Uh, it's used in Leviticus 25, 25 this way. We find it used elsewhere of someone who is given the, the rightness to go and avenge a murderer. The living takes up the cause of the dead. And here Israel thought no one would come to rescue them as helpless, hopeless, as a people who failed God. But God in their sin, speaks this gospel hope. He says, I am acting as your next of kin. I am taking on your cause on my shoulders because you are mine, precious in my sight. I love you who are unlovely to the world. Nobody's coming to look at you and talk about how beautiful you are. But I see you as beautiful because you are my people. In my eyes, you are glorious and you'll be made glorious. Their Redeemer God comes to save them in righteousness. It is right and fitting that God does this as their next of kin, that he saves them. 
And God is pointing them to his his past faithfulness in the Exodus and then forward to his future promise to be with them, both in water and in fire. Did you catch that? I'm with you in the water. I'm with you in the fire. Don't miss this. He doesn't say he will rescue them from the water or the fire, but through the water, through the fire. God would be with them in the fire, protecting them like he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that scene in Daniel where the king is looking in and he's asking himself, I know we stuck three guys in there. Math, not so good. I'm counting four. What about you? So who's the fourth guy? Well, the fourth guy is the Holy One of Israel. It is God himself protecting his people through the fire. See, water and fire here is really giving his people a picture of totality. Whatever trials come your way, whatever it is, any of those things that I I mentioned before, whatever trial comes, even the trials that you bring upon yourself, know this, your Redeemer God is with you. And don't miss what verse 3 says. He says it's the Holy One of Israel, the God who hung the stars and rescued you from Egypt and Assyria. He is the one who is your Savior, who takes up your cause. God's blind messenger might look to Him, might not look to him, this servant. But they are still precious in his eyes, honored. And God says, I love you to his exiled people. Nobody else was coming for them, but God would. And do you see the awe-inspiring love of God on display here? He says, I would give all of Africa and men and peoples as a ransom in exchange for their lives. And then verse 7 tells us the reason that he formed Israel. It was for his glory. There are a couple of things, Christian, that I would like for us to note here. The first is, when you hear those words, as God is speaking to Israel, as his covenant people, knowing that we are God's covenant people in Christ, do you know that He is telling us that He looks on us as His people whom He honors, who are precious in His sight, whom He loves. Does it almost feel wrong to think of a transcendent God, our transcendent God, who is great and perfect in holiness, actually looking at us in that way? And yet He does. And I'm I'm wondering this morning, Christian, have you lost sight of the awe-inspiring love on display in the pages of Scripture about God's heart for us. If you lost sight of the beauty of John 3.16, where we are told that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send Jesus to save and redeem the model actress from the movie. The one that everybody's paying millions of dollars to play a role in that film and his story. He came for a people living in rebellion against him who nobody else wanted. And he has loved us with a love that nothing can separate. It's an otherworldly kind of love. Our, our worldly loves, they break apart. Famous people come together and then they drift apart. They walk out of people's lives and join up with someone else. But he says he loves us with a love that nothing can separate us from, neither life or even death in Romans 8. What wondrous love is this that God 
has given to his people. It's the kind of love that makes you want to sing and to write songs about and to gather together with other people that have been loved in this way to sing about it and revel in it together, doesn't it? That's kind of what we're doing on Sundays. We are reveling in the God who has so loved us, declaring it, hoping that others who long to believe that this kind of love actually exists really does, and they want to know people who know about it, and that's us. If you're a new Christian, maybe you're thinking that great faith leads to an easy life. It leads to a great love, but it doesn't mean an easy life yet. Maybe you thought that God would, if you came to Christ, would give you a better job. Like, it sounded like when you heard the gospel, something like, God loves me, therefore I get everything that I've wanted on my want list. I'm going to get that spouse that I've been praying for. Absolute victory over sinful desires. And the Phoenix Suns, they might even eke out a championship if I just come to Jesus. We see how that went. But in Hebrews 11, in the list of heroes of the faith, the kind of people the Bible is setting up is, is, is examples of what it looks like to truly trust and cling to God. We find that some stop the mouth of lions, like Daniel. And then others were actually cut in two, like we believe to be speaking of Isaiah, the prophet speaking this. Faith means trusting that God is your Savior and Redeemer who loves you and never leaves you, even in death. We know that better life is coming, but that's coming with Jesus returning, and we need him to get back. We don't believe in a tit-for-tat kind of Christian karma. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. The kind of idea that every good that you do has a mirrored sort of good in return, and every evil you do, it'll be a, an absolute equal evil in return. You can't always read the joy or sorrow of your life back into specific sins or victories. No, God is actually a personal being over all of these things, working them for His glory. See, this is a redemptive history of God acting on history and in your life and in our lives. And it's ultimately about His glory and then our joy. See, God is personally for His people, even through the darkness. This is what we find in the history of Israel. It it reminds me of a line from a song by William Cowper where he writes this, and he says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face, a face that loves His beloved people. Third, notice that God declares His salvation when His deaf-blind witnesses cannot in 43, 8-13. The scene of verses 8-9 to is, I think, filled with a kind of grim irony. God calls His servant Israel to enter a courtroom as His deaf-blind witnesses. And it's kind of a crazy scene. Uh, You'll notice that God calls his servant Israel when they come in, and he he asks them to give a kind of testimony. And he asks, what did this blind man see or this deaf man hear concerning the deeds of the Lord? And you'll notice in the first half of 10, God calls on his chosen servant, the nation of Israel, to bear witness to him. And notice what he, he says When he says, I chose you, he says this in verse 10, I chose you that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. But what they fail to testify 
Is it God himself? When they fail to testify and they don't have anything to say about what they've seen or heard, God himself testifies in his own behalf in the rest of 10 and 13. This is what he says. He says this, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God, and also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? See, God formed man, but there's no God that formed Israel's God. God declared that he is the first and the last. He is the self-existent creator and sustainer with whom there is no equal. He is Yahweh, that covenant-keeping God of Israel. And the Exodus event seemed to be behind verses 11 to 12 still as he gives his divine name, Yahweh. And he declares that beside me there is no Savior. There's nowhere else to go for help. I declared and saved and proclaimed, you are my witnesses. When I delivered you, it was me. There was no one else that was helping me before me or behind me. And notice in verse 13 that God acts as judge. He, he takes the stand and he declares that he is the only true God. There is none who can deliver from his hand. No one can undo God's sovereign saving purposes. But the irony is, again, that God has to testify himself because his witnesses are deaf, blind, and imprisoned for their sins. But did you catch how God identifies himself in verse, in verse 14? Look there and notice here that we find that God is their redeemer in 14 to 21. Don't miss this. They're covenant-keeping God and Redeemer who's rescued them in the past and will come in the future to rescue them through the fire is here the Holy One of Israel. He is their Creator King. This is the one that gave them their existence, who formed them, who created them. They were no people, but God called them my people. And God here is sending to Babylon that, that nation that in the future would be their captors. And he brings them in as fugitives in the ships in which they would rejoice, in which they rejoiced. Now, as we look at that scene, some have said that this describes Cyrus taking Babylon, Babylon's defeat here. But history tends to record that as kind of a peaceful reception. Others have seen this as an eschatological end times kind of event where God defeats all of his people's enemies. But I think if I'm reading Isaiah, it's more likely drawing from the first mention of Babylon in this book in Isaiah 39, where King Hezekiah of Judah invited the king of Babylon to see his rich treasury, likely to form a kind of alliance to protect them from Assyria. Now here's the, the, the wrongness of that situation. Politically, it might have seemed smart, but theologically, it was completely wrong because God had already saved Judah miraculously from Assyria. They didn't need to put their trust in the boats of Babylon. They needed to put their trust in the Holy One of Israel. Yet the Redeemer of Israel Himself here, we find, is the one who takes on the cause of His people. His spiritually deaf, blind, People. He reminds Israel of how they passed through the Red Sea in the Exodus again before God dropped the sea on the mighty army of Egypt. In Egypt, they trusted not in boats, but in their horses and chariots more than they feared God. 
But did you catch the metaphor that he uses for these three trials in verse 17? They are extinguished, and they are quenched like a wick. These enemies of God. The picture is, you can imagine a candle with a little fire lit on the wick. And here's the picture of how God deals with that problem that to us looks like the world's on fire and nobody can stop it. Get that? That's the size of God before our enemies. It is not hard. God's doing something bigger than we can see. And when we lose sight of God in our trials, we feel like things are out of control. But when we see the sovereignty of God and we truly have a a vision of who He truly is, we understand that there is never a trial, there's never a physical enemy, there's never a sickness, there's never anything that is like outside His ability to come in and God snuffs out great fiery enemy nations like a single candle wick. Blind people lose sight of how, God, how big God is. And God here, notice in verses 19 to 21, speaks of a new thing where His people will not need to be rescued from drowning in the waters in verses 19 to 21. He says this, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed, I created for myself, that they might declare my praise. This new thing that will spring up suddenly with life is pictured as being like the grass that grows on Thunderbird Mountain after a monsoon. You know how it goes from like brown, ugly brown, to like green and beautiful? God asked if they perceive it because they should perceive it. He's telling them they've had trouble with perception as of late. And notice that God saved His people through the chaotic waters in the Exodus. Babylon trusted in their own boats that they built with their own hands to carry them across the waters. But here, God's doing a new thing with the water turning the dry desert into an oasis of living waters. Those waters are no longer a picture of chaos and separation from God. They actually are something that turn into something life-giving. In fact, one author suggests this image of God making a way and bringing water doesn't simply describe a physical renewal. It does seem to be that creation is singing to the glory of God like it ought to, but it is also a spiritual renewal. Humanity honors and praises God as God. The waters, they no longer threaten separation from God and death and drowning, but they are living waters that will spring up, refreshing God's people and blessing all of creation from the wild beasts to the ostriches. Now, don't miss this last line. Of his people, he says, I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. What is the purpose of all of God's faithfulness to Israel, making them a people, his people? It's that they might praise him for his glorious deeds. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is someone who has been purchased with the blood of Christ, has been redeemed by the Lamb. And as such, we are His, 
his possession, his possession for the purpose of singing his praises. We sing his praises because nobody was coming for us when we were in that dungeon, when we were enslaved to sin, death, and eternal wrath. But Jesus did. Jesus came for us. And that's why we sing his praises. We were made for this. Now, let me close with a, a few quick applications. First, Christian, do you see how much God is for you? He is for you. Jesus came for you like you were his next of kin to take up your cause, laying down his life for you. The perfect Son of God laid down his life in your place, saying that you are like my next of kin in the way that I'm going to love and redeem you. He died for us while long your imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature night when your eye diffused a, a quickening ray and you woke and the dungeon flamed with light, your chains fell off and heart was set free. You rose, went forth and followed him. Do you remember that? That is the day that that Jesus set us free because He is for you. Jesus came for you when no one else was coming. He is the only Savior. He is your Savior. Pronouns matter, don't they? He's not just His Savior or her Savior or their Savior, but your Savior. Not only that, we, we, Christian brothers and sisters, we are God's people. Most scholars, when they look at this, they connect verses 20 to 21 of Isaiah 43 to 1 to Peter 2.9. You remember that verse, that beautiful verse where it says that but you are a chosen race. He's speaking to Christians, Christians from the nations. He says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are his precious possession, brothers and sisters. That you, here's the purpose, may what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are you here for? Why is Jesus, why did he come for you? It is to bless you beyond your imagination that you might sing of his praises. Do you see it? God redeemed Israel that they might declare his praise. And the purpose of the church is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into that marvelous light. Let me just ask you, husbands and fathers, we've been having these great times together, men and our, our dignified men's study. How are you doing at making your home a house of praise for God's salvation with your wife and your kids? Do they see you fighting to make much of Jesus in your home? Do, do they see you going to church and, and eagerly fighting, earnestly investing yourself to make much of Jesus? Do they see you making friends with non-Christians, trying to show them the glories of Christ. You were made for this. Who of you lately, brothers and sisters, proclaimed God's excellencies too? Let me help you. You did it this morning when you sang with Jake about the glories of Christ. We do it when we are going and, and teaching others about the glories of Christ. We we do it when we evangelize the lost. We were made to make much of Jesus, our Redeemer and Savior. But here's what this means. God made us His people for this. And so we are His. The implication of that is, you are not 
Your body is not your own. You know, Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, he says, you are not your own. I'm not mine, you're not yours. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Like everything is His now. He, he came and He saved, rescued, redeemed you. We're His. Let me get real practical. That means you, your eyes, what you look at. It's God's. The things you touch. Like, it's God's. The, the sounds, the things that I listen to, that I take in. Because I can hear now. I've been given eyes to see and ears to hear. It, it is for the glory of God. My smells, I have teenage sons. I had to put this in there. For the glory of God. Let's not be offensive. Your, your taste. Like when you taste things, we, we taste and we, we glorify God because he has made good, sweet things. Aren't you grateful that not everything tastes like oatmeal? Some of you love oatmeal, but I know you're cheating and adding like tons of sugar and it's more sugar than oatmeal. It's because oatmeal doesn't taste good. But we don't have a world of just oatmeal. We have things like popsicles. Praise the Lord for popsicles. Praise the Lord for popsicles. And all of these are for the glory of our Redeemer. You can enjoy good things as you wait like exiles for Jesus to return. We can enjoy sunsets and hugs and steaks. Not as God's, but as God's good gifts that cause us to sing His praises? Are we deflecting attention to God in the way that we are living our lives? Not just around our Christian friends, but even with our non-Christian family and friends. And if you're a non-Christian, this morning I'm curious, who's coming for you? Now, this, is, this is a question I have for you, friend. I, there have been many dark days in my life. And the one question that sometimes... And often when I get to an end of myself, arises is this. If not for God, what's the point? I have nowhere else to turn but God. Where else do I find hope but in Him? No one's coming for me, and if they did, no one can help with the needs that I have. But I know one who can. It's the God who comes for His people, comes as Redeemer to rescue them. And could it be that, that your sense of hopelessness, purposelessness, or maybe even meaning in the wrong things this morning is, is really God creating circumstances, fires in your life, allowing them to come about so that it might cause you to look to God for salvation. But you refuse again and again. And it gets hotter and hotter and feels more and more meaningless. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. And if you turn in faith to Jesus today, He will save you from your sins and make you right with God. He will give you meaning and hope. He came to take up the cause of those dying without hope, and He laid down His life for your sins to bring you peace with God.